everybody. You're back at the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at our guests, two guests, Dr. Sherry Lemure-Spiegel and Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. Sherry and Paul, hi. Hey, Kim. Hi, Kim. How are you? Great. I'm so happy you're here. And let me tell you who Dr. Sherry Lemure-Spiegel is and who Dr. Paul Fitzgerald is. Sherry is a professor of English, and Paul is a professor of biology. They're both at the Northern Virginia Community College, and they run this fabulous center called the Annandale Center for Contemplative Practice. I'm going to spell Annandale for you, A-N-N-A-N-D-A-L-E, the Annandale Center for Contemplative Practice, and another really cool website you have to check out that maybe Sherry will talk about, This Most Unbelievable Life. Dot com this most unbelievable life.com now the topic today is nonviolent communication and how did we get to Dr. Sherry and Dr. Paul by our friend Miss Heather Brode Heather Brode is a coach friend colleague of mine who used to be at the Ohio State University and she and I you've heard me talk about her in the podcast before we developed um, last year the Hopkins career development coaching camp for mid-career women. We're doing it for the second time coming up in a couple of months. She's fabulous. She and I are writing a book together. And Heather said, Kim, oh my gosh, nonviolent communication. You got to get Sherry and Paul. They're the bee's knees. They're right down the street from us. I'm in Baltimore. They're in Virginia. And so we're going to learn a lot from them. And let me just read this one sentence. I love this from the website. The Annandale Center for Contemplative Practice assists faculty, staff, and students in bringing a mindful, nonviolent perspective to their personal and professional experiences. We need to, we need this in our lives. So thank you both for being here. Sherry, Paul, bring it to us. All right. Well, thanks for having us, Kim. We're happy to talk. Very good to be here. Yeah, so we thought we would do a little bit of a, a chat through of what we do at the Annandale Center for Contemplative Practice and sort of why it exists in the first place, but also just really talk about how we got to doing this work um, <laughs> and why nonviolent communication in particular has become so central uh, to the work that we do as faculty um, and as colleagues. Um, and I think it's really changed the way even just the way that Paul and I communicate with each other. Um, so we thought we'd do a little primer on NVC, nonviolent communication, uh, and then talk about what it's doing for us at the college. So, Paul, where do you want to start with NVC? Um, I guess I would probably start with with how we did get, get started on it. And um, Sherry and I have known each other for a, a few years now. We both go go back at the college uh, 10, 15 years almost, but we've only really started hanging out with each other for the last four or five. Um, and, you know, that's a whole other story in and of itself. But, you know, kind of somewhere in the mix of that, sort of soon after we started to work together, uh, Sherry got a, 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 a what was it, a, a grant? It was a, it was an award. A fellowship. Yeah, a fellowship uh, to study nonviolent communication. Um, and so she kind of went down this down this path of it as a way to communicate 
uh, with with others, communicate with students, communicate with colleagues. And it turns out it's like communicate with anyone. It goes home with you. Um, we can actually talk with ourselves in a more nonviolent way. And if we can do that, then I mean that's that's ultimately a gateway for self-compassion anywhere anywhere that you are. And so it started with that. It started with uh, the Lozer Savkar Fellowship that that Sherry got uh, a few years ago. When was that, Sherry? 2019? 2019, 2019 yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this this speaks to the value of diversity in its broadest sense. I love that I'm looking at Dr. Spiegel, English, Dr. Fitzgerald, biology. My background, Kim, is sociology and gerontology. We're talking about faculty development. I mean, isn't this the an, a beautiful example of bringing people together from all diverse fields and backgrounds and working together to find solutions for common problems that we all in our institutions struggle with professional misconduct and recent political events that have kind of kind of raised the temperature on behavior and changed expectations for behavior and and microaggressions we've been talking about so many of these things and you kind of like know it when you see it but sometimes you don't and and People's, you know, I just was on the phone earlier before we started recording today with someone who's having a problem with a faculty member. And this faculty member is is brilliant, of course, great, does great work, but doesn't realize the impact of his words and thinks, this is, I didn't mean that. I had no intent. What are you talking? I thought it was funny. I didn't mean, that's not where I was going with it. So it just, it just happens all the time. And um, I just we need to learn more about what, what you're doing, yeah. because I think that will help us put some understand like parameters and, and, and how how our, the impact of our words affects other people and behavior. So I think this is so timely. Yeah, that's great. I'm especially because like intent versus impact is such an important conversation. Um, one of the things that we say in the nonviolent communication world is that everyone, every single person is just a being trying to get their needs met, right? Like we're all going around trying to get our needs met. Um, And so, you know, when you think about that faculty member who's having trouble connecting and is like, oh, well, that's not what I meant. That faculty member's thinking about a particular need, um, maybe not even thinking about it overtly, but there's a particular need they're trying to reach. And then for their audience, there's another kind of need that that person has. And so they're clashing. And so one of the things that we really get into is the fact that needs clash, but people, we're all a lot more common and more similar than we think because we all have the same basic universal needs, Um, which is always really interesting to me because um, I always make this joke that a universal need is not for Paul to bring me chocolate. I would love that to be a universal need, but it's not. Um, Apparently, that's a strategy to meet a need. So alas. Alas, alas, I love how we've woven in chocolate to this. This is wonderful. Continue. Now I'm hungry. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and occasionally I do bring chocolate though. So it's, it's a strategy for me too. To... Yeah. Yeah. I, it I, helps think a different, I think it's a yeah. different episode because I believe there is a need, but again, we'll divert that. <laughs> yeah. With, with students. Day. I mean, when we talk to students a, a lot, I mean, one of the first things that they think about when they think about the things they really need is their cell phone. Mm-hmm. You know, and a cell phone is like, t- if you really want to think about it, a cell phone is not a true need. It's a strategy that may meet a lot of needs that they have. 
Um, but if, if a cell phone was a need, I wonder how I got by for the first 35 years of my life without one, right? So it's, it's a very strong want. Um, it's something we rely on uh, to get a lot of the needs that we do legitimately and authentically have met. But the cell phone in and of itself is not a true need. A need. So when you're talking needs, so I want to hear more about what are the, you said that our needs clash and yet we are all so similar. And uh, when you say need, so help us understand, are you talking, are we going back to Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Is this what we're talking about? And can you remind us about that pyramid? Sure. Yeah. So um, we often get asked about that pyramid um, and we kind of don't talk about that pyramid. We just talk about So we have lots of human needs that are sort of essential um, and we don't hire, uh, put them in a hierarchy, right? Um, But they're all necessary to to live a full full and fulfilled life. Um, So the Center for Nonviolent Communication uh, actually has a need inventory that is a really great tool that I recommend anybody who's interested in really getting to understand what their needs are to take a look at this list. Um, And it's a really basic set of terms. Um, And every single one of us needs the same things, right? No matter where you are in the world, uh, no matter what age you are, they're they're pretty common. And so what nonviolent communication does um, is really focused on those needs. Um, But in order to get into those needs, our little passageway through is a topic that not all academics love to hang out with, and that's feelings. Oh, ah, uh, ooh, boom, grumble. Yeah, there are more right. feelings than just angry, mad, and sad, and glad. I'm like, I can either be angry, I'm mad, I'm sad, or I'm glad. And I remember my friends like, really? That's that's the all the feelings. I'm like, oh, there are more than angry, sad, mad, glad, and that means like three to one, you have like negative feelings. Look at these feeling things, icky. All right, I'm in it. You're in Go it. Ahead. You're in it. I've girded my loins. I'm ready for what of this feeling conversation. Right. The good thing is, is NBC. There's actually a step before feelings. Um, but I just like to give you the trigger warning that feelings. Are right. Coming. Feelings are coming soon. Right. <laughs> yeah. There was um, a song for those of you who are inching up on your 60s or lo- young 60s. There is a song. Feeling, whoa, whoa, whoa! I won't sing. Continue uh, <laughs> muting myself. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we start um, with observation, um, and that I think um, academics are more comfortable with, right? Like we are trained observers, uh, but the kind of observation we are doing uh, might also be a little itchy for we, for those of us in the academy. So, Paul, do you want to talk about? what we mean when we say observing. Sure, sure. I mean, when we're talking about uh, how it starts with observing, um, and also that's a good way to get science folks on board as well, because it's like feelings, we'll get to feelings soon. Let's talk about observing stuff. And what are we observing then? Um, How do we, what's going on inside of us? You know, what's going on underneath the skin? So it's observations about the self um, that we can make. Um, I'm hearing this. Um, I'm noticing that I, as a response to that, as I hear what you're saying, I'm feeling a little, I don't know, uh, like some tightness. My shoulders are kind of scrunching up a little bit. Um, I'm feeling uh, maybe like a little tension in my forehead. I mean, it really is um, noticing what is happening inside of us as we're observing what other people are saying and doing. Um, 
And so when we think about like, it starts with observation. One is required and asked then to engage in nonviolent communication, to pay attention. And that's why you sort of have this mindfulness guy over here that hangs out with uh, with Sherry on this, right? This, this amazing framework of NVC starts with paying attention to the self and being present in the, you know, in, in the moment that we're in and noticing what's happening inside of us, not saying anything, not doing anything, not responding or reacting to it in any way, just slowing down and paying attention to how we're feeling on the inside, right? And what's happening inside of us that can be physically Right, really describing what's happening in the body. I don't know. I'm getting kind of kind of anxious, and my shoulders are kind of tightening up a little bit. Right to ah, you know, I'm feeling really relaxed. I'm breathing easy. I mean, these are all observations that we can make within ourselves when uh, witnessing, when noticing, when listening to what someone else is is saying. So by saying, you know, it starts with observation. It also kind of goes hand in hand with. It starts with listening. Uh-huh. That is, this is so, so smart. This is makes so much sense to get, get at feelings through. Did you say something was itchy? I love that itchy. Yeah. Get, the word itchy. Feelings, yeah. I'm feeling itchy. Yeah. Feeling yeah. itchy. Uh, getting at the feeling feelings through wearing like an anthropological hat as I'm almost like a stepping out of yourself. And if you were a participant observer or just charting, a situation and you were paid paid to go in and observe uh someone teaching or doing a procedure or running a meeting if you could have that stepping outside of yourself and what do you observe and that gets to that emotional intelligence of then knowing ourselves to better manage ourselves and knowing others to better manage those relationships this kind of all weaves in together being able to read between the lines read the body language see what's being said, listen to what's being said, but what's not being said and how people hold those moments observing in their body. Because sometimes I like how you were describing the different sensations, Paul, that we may not be able to put words to that, but my friend might be able to say, oh yeah, I saw your foot start tapping away and your knee was bobbing. I knew you were getting, you know, ready to to jump. And I, you started twirling that pencil and she started, you know, messing with her hair and he started jingling with his, I mean, our bodies sometimes betray our feelings, right? So I, I really like this idea of let's not get into the mushy, 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 lovey feeling thing, but let's be Field scientists observe. Yeah, things. yeah, and, and rather than and rather than our bodies feeling like we're our bodies are betraying us, our bodies can be a pathway, a doorway into what's really happening inside of us that we can pay attention to, to be able to make a, a more informed, more more informed status of of how we're reacting and responding and feeling when something comes up. And see how you just noticed, Dr. Fitzgerald, when I said our body betraying us and you said, oh, yes, and not necessarily betraying us. But now you see how Kim Skorupski feels her body <laughs> betraying her. So hence my right. would be my body's giving me away versus yeah. my body is helping me. Yeah. That's another observation of the language I use would tell you a bit about me. Yeah, and that changes violent communication of my body is betraying me into nonviolent communication is my body is a doorway that's telling me some information. Maybe I should pay attention right now. I'm so violent. Oh, my gosh. Help me. (laughs) And it shows up so often. It does. Um, 
you know, one of the things we talk about is not only this this keen observation, but trying to make observation non-judgmental. And so betrayal, right? Like that has that judgment language to it. And so like trying to get back into that, like that really anthropological, like, um, you know, like I am noticing that my body feels discomfort and, you know, and so, and also reading it within other people, right? Um, So not the person angrily walked into my office with a bone to pick, but instead like, I'm noticing that this person walked in with a great amount of speed and they're talking very fast and hmm, I'm wondering how they're feeling. And I suspect underneath those feelings, there are some specific pressing needs and the speed is giving way to the urgency of those needs instead of they're angry and now they're going to be rude to me. I, I, that, that to me, the two fundamentals of coaching when I got my coaching certification was being curious and non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of hit on both of this. It's almost like wearing a coaching hat. So maybe if those of us who are like new to nonviolent communication and trying to be, you know, less judge, judging about our own selves, Kim Skorupski, and um, <laughs> that that you would be pretend we're a coach and say, okay, if I were a coach, how would I be non-judgmental and curious about myself? And how might I be curious and non-judgmental about this relationship or this meeting or this team or these students? So the, that mindset framework or that lens changes the way probably our kind of gut reaction or instinct might immediately go to oh, pattern seeking, you know, anger, violence, danger, warning, warning versus, oh, that's curious. I'm noticing that I want to punch somebody. But where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if we did a, like a show of hands, who right now, right, has ever felt like punching someone, we would all raise our hands, you know, it's like, Absolutely. you know, I don't want to speak for Sherry, but I suspect both of us, I mean, we sort of know this, we still, we have not exercised judgment of self from our bodies at all. I mean, we still have this, you know, it's it's part of the human condition is to like do a little bit of self-judgment. Um, however, this has given us a framework that's like, is that really true though? You know, that's one way of describing what's inside of me. And and, yeah. and that's a little judgy. Is there something else that I could can say about this or another different place that I can go that maybe is a little kinder to myself and not quite so so judgmental? Yeah. I mean, we, you're right. We all do it. Get get um, any of us behind the wheel of a car. So if you're thinking, not me, not me. Yeah. Oh, really? Get in your car and then talk about all the idiots and morons and maniacs, um, right? There, Everybody is. We're all judgy and critical and uh, yeah, not at all curious about, boy, I wonder why he's in such a hurry. I've had to change my mindset. Oh, he must have to go potty really badly <laughs> from what, what I used to think before. What a maniac. And now I'm like, oh, poor guy's got to go potty. Yeah. And <laughs> it's it's so funny how, like, like, it's almost fun to come up with the more charitable narratives, like, once you get in the habit of it. Um, but it does sort of require this frame shift. And I love, Kim, that you were talking about, like, the judging versus the curious, because that's an, such an important, those two terms are so important in NVC. Um, so Marshall Rosenberg, who created the nonviolent communication framework in the beginning, um, he used to talk about these two little kind of animal sidekicks uh, to NVC. And one was the judging jackal. And we all have a judging jackal. Um, and then the other is the curious giraffe or the guessing giraffe. 
Um, so the idea being that, you know, giraffes have these big, huge hearts so that they can pump all that blood all the way up to their brains. Um, so they have big hearts. So they're curious and generous. Uh, and then the jackal is sort of more on edge and more judgy. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating in whenever I work with folks new to NVC, the first thing they do is they identify the jackal as the bad one and the giraffe as the good one. Um, but we both we all have both. Um, and so I think the key is to be generous and loving to our jackal, who keeps us safe because the world isn't always nonviolent and safe. Um, and then the giraffe keeps us curious so that we can um, we cannot be arbiters of violence on others. Yeah. This is wonderful. So, so, okay, we're we are leaders in faculty development, faculty affairs, and academic medicine around the world. We are faculty members in academic medicine. Um, help us out with uh, put put help us out if those of us who are seeing patients in the clinic and we have dicey situations with with patients in our hospitals or staff on our teams or our colleagues in in the lab our our fellows our trainees uh where does this um can you give us an example of how you might intervene in a scenario to equip us to not to to, to use that mindful presence of being non-judgmental and curious yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think we could both say some things about that. Um, I think if uh, the way that I would bring the, the the mindful presence into it is when when we feel this way, when we're interacting with others, when we're in a challenging situation, and we know that things are getting kind of tense, and um, we're constantly sort of go, 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 nonstop. Um, let's all just just pause for a minute. Let's just take a minute take a breath, make sure that we're both seeing ourselves and everybody else around us as actual people that are on this earth together with us. And we can start from there. Let's all stop and take a breath. You know, not everything always has to be such a rush. Um, if we feels like that we have a huge amount of stuff we have to do, oftentimes that is true. Um, if when we sometimes act very, very quickly and reactively in situations like that, um, sometimes I like to say this, we're blessed because we get to do it a couple of times uh, because we never necessarily get it right. If we slow down, take a breath, you know, kind of reestablish partnership with those around us, we can do it effectively, very effectively and responsively and much more, therefore, much more efficiently if we all just take a second. Sherry and I do, believe it or not, have disagreement on occasion. Uh, we <laughs> And uh, what people what people sometimes when we talk about this, what we'll say to them is that our conversations since we've developed this framework have become very, very slow. That being said, we usually have them one time. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So, all right, Paul, you've hit on something that is the one of the fundamental, classic, always- perennial issues for faculty, I'm sure anybody, any adult these days is time, 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 time. I don't have time to build relationships. I don't have time to pause and explain this, why this is important for the umpteenth time. I don't have the time of the day. I have so much to do. If I stop to do this, I'm not going to be able to do that. That's just Everybody, everybody, it's like this cult of busy, right? I'm so yeah. busy. Yeah. I'm busier than you. I'm going to out busy you. 
as if it's some kind of badge of honor to be busy without realizing that what you said, um, if you, yeah, it's going to take a little bit of time now, but it's, it's an investment now that will pay off dividends in the future that you don't have to keep. Well, I'll just do it myself. I just, this is taking too long to explain. I'll just do it myself. Well, if you back up that train and say, well, I am going to spend time with say, I just hired Paul and he's the fifth hire and you've had to read, you're like, I'm going to orient him. We're going to do this right because then I'm not going to be holding his hand for the next umpteen months that it does pay off. It is time, but that investment is well spent. So, but it gets back to time. Like talk to us more about this efficiency or perception of it being inefficient for me to do this, to slow down. I don't have time to slow down, Sherry. This And we work with this so often. So, you know, in the middle of a very busy academic institution, we run a center called the Annandale Center for Contemplative Practice, right? Um, And so we're the space for slowing down. And so, yes, when we first started this work, um, so many people, and we still get it like, oh, I don't have time to go to your workshops. Like, I I don't have time. I don't have time. Um, I am a recovering workaholic. um, And I think... So much of the work that Paul and I do together really comes, like it started because I was burning myself out and I was striving, striving, striving. And all I knew was more, more, more. I didn't have time for anything and I was killing myself. Um, And this is kind of, it's, I'm not the anomaly, right? Like this is how academics live their life and it's how their mentors live their lives. And so we kind of have a cultural problem. And I think that NVC and mindfulness coupled with compassion are the tools that Paul and I are using to deprogram that in ourselves. Um, So one of the first uh, presentations that I did after I started working with Paul was like reminding myself of the need to like, you know, in cycles, everything in our universe works in a cycle um, plants, our seasons, all of that model periods of dormancy for us. Mm. Um, mm. And so who are we to be the one species that thinks we don't get dormancy, right? Like we need it too. Um, so if you don't have time, it's because you think you're a machine and you're not, you're going to be disappointed. So we do a lot in the center about boundaries, about really pay- being really cautious about what you say yes to and being really uh, free about what you say no to. What would you add, Paul? Uh, we uh, uh, we we sometimes talk about. I mean, we've had workshops that we just title "How to Say No," mm-hmm. uh, and um, when we talk about you know how how do we how do we have this conversation and how do we bring it up and why is that a title? It's like we as faculty we don't have a hard time saying yes. We say yes to things all the time. We're very good at saying yes. How do we say no? Yeah. How do we say no? Um, and, you know, do you need to be on five committees? You know, um, if we think about this, this internal desire to go fast, run, 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 go fast, go fast, rush, rush, rush. Think about the fastest things that exist on nature, both biological and machine. Cheetahs don't run all the time. You know, things that run fast, they don't run all the time. They can go fast. You know, most of the time, um, a race car is sitting in the garage. It's not going 
200 miles an hour all the time, right? Slow maintenance. You can go as fast as you want. And nobody is telling anyone to go less or this stuff isn't important or these things are not meaningful to you, right? What it is, is there's a time to go fast and there's a time to slow down and rest. And we can make some, bring some discernment to this um, if we bring some mindful awareness to what's going on in our body. It's like, am I hungry? Am I drinking enough water today? <laughs> you know, it's like talk about Maslow, those basic self-care things, you know, that foundational thing is there for a reason. You know, it's, it's, um, the, the body does need things that we that we do better. The whole pyramid does better. You know, the, the race car does better if you change the oil, give it the day, rotate the tires, you know, give it a fresh tank of gas, you know, putting good gas in it, not not gas that makes the engine stall. So you know, there's this whole conversation to be had that looks like just the, the person is a totality, um, both on campus and off campus. Um, and, you know, if they manage to have a family, clearly they're not working all the time. So they must they must take a little bit of time off every once in a while. What does that look like in the day, both while you're working and while you're not? You know, and there's a time to be fast and a time to to pause and rest. And, and, and yeah. that can happen throughout the day or at the end of the day. And it changes. Throughout yeah, the year. The, the, you're you're the, you're so you're. This is so interesting. I guess I, I'm back to what one of my old pastors says. There's no such thing as a coincidence. And my daily devotional today talked about seasons and this concept of wintering. Mm-hmm. But there's there's this person who said that oh you know you're just like the gardens go through a season of dormancy as you mentioned Sherry that the idea of wintering means that. You are in, say, you're in a wintering season of life or this part of your life where um, things are underground, buried deep, quiet, maybe cold, retreating, maybe dark. But this is a part, and I'm thinking of people who have maybe different life events or maybe, you know, the global pandemic, things kind of took a big dip and you're maybe feeling like this is not, um, you're not at your best right now. You may be wintering. This is a season of life where things are underground, where you can't quite see them yet. So this notion of seasons of life where we are in having children, raising children, getting promoted, dealing with loss of parents or uh, all the different, you know, seasons of life that that is, um, you're right. It's, it's profound and yet so simple that we, don't recognize that we are not always in springtime. It's not always blooming there. You need to have the seasons where things will, if you're not failing at something, that means you're not trying enough, right? You're going to have failures. You're going to have rejections. The papers will be rejected. Your grants will not be funded. You, you know, the the patient's treatment won't, won't work the the right time, uh, the right way. People will quit. There's always something that's going to, you know, that's life. It's a cycling through seasons. And so that makes so much sense to, to me. And yet I can't help but think about when you talked about, you know, we need to be reprogrammed is that there's this tension, obviously, that our bosses, our department chairs and leaders, our, our deans, our presidents of our universities, and now I'm going to be grossly generalizing here. They want us to work as hard as we can, right? They, especially if you're a clinician, they want you generating as much RV, RVUs as possible, relative value units. Your annual review is going to be, what have you done for us lately? You're not yeah. working hard enough. You're not getting enough papers. You're not getting enough grants. You know, you need more of this. You need So it's this kind of message of 
more, 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 more. So the tension is, and we as academics, of course, overachieving always more, more, more. It's so ingrained in us. And so that's the tension of how do we then purposely push back against that mindset to say, like you said, this is going to kill me. I, I, and I, we always tell our, our faculty members, this is, you know, academia is not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It's a marathon with no end. There is no end to this marathon. It's not going to stop. Yeah. So you got to figure out how to pace yourself. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's funny because when we first started, when Paul and I first started working together, um, I was trying to dial back from that sprinting mode. Um, and I had just started reading books like How to Do Nothing and um, started dabbling with mindfulness and dabbling with meditation. Um, and I did it all as a self-care thing. But the thing is, is like you can't meditate your way out of a bad system. And that's what we, you know, academia, like there's a lot of you know, similarities between this and a toxic boyfriend, right? Like <laughs> academia is your toxic boyfriend. Like just admit it. Um, so we kind of have to like reevaluate that relationship. And I had a lot of anxiety when I pulled back and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be worthless now. Um, but what's funny is I pulled all the way back, got really selfish in my words uh, about what I said yes to and decided I was not going to just be productive anymore. I was just going to work on a few things and do them well and, you know, whatever, see what happens. Um, I wish past sharing knew how many doors opened when I started taking care of myself and really just started saying yes to the right projects. Um, you know, I have a PhD in English, um, in writing and rhetoric, and writing has always been the hardest thing in the world for me. When I take care of myself, writing flows out of me like so easily. And so, um, you know, I used to push and push for like awards and stuff like that. Like Paul and I won an award for our center this past year. It Something happened when we stopped striving and found the tools to thriving. Ooh, say that again. Something happened when we stopped uh, striving and found the tools for thriving. And that's actually uh, a gateway into a whole series that we've done at the center this past mm-hmm. year, right, Paul? Yeah, it has, right? The year to thrive. Um, where we tell us like, more, Paul. All right. Yeah, pick it up. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, we, we kind of went this at it like from a very, hopefully, we tried to anyway, a very practical approach to. Um, the sort of the user experience. It's like, okay, so I'm a striving faculty person on my campus or staff, right? We, 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 we work with anyone at our college, faculty, staff, admin, whoever would like to, we're all Nova Nighthawks. Um, and let's say that I've heard of this Paul and Sherry and they're doing something weird and I haven't heard of it, but uh, they seem pretty happy. So how do I, how do I, like, so what do I do? And um, so it's like what we we developed a, what we call the year to thrive. And it's a, you know, eight or nine part. So I start with who I am. What is a progression of things that I can, I can sort of do uh, like mindsets, tools, um, practices, uh, each one having a workbook, right. And a workshop that goes along with it that takes me from where I am now 
right? To actually um, a celebration, right? Celebrating the end of the year as opposed to just sort of burying myself in a blanket and, you know, hustling through and ending with exhaustion. Um, and we sort of got a little bit of inspiration from this just sort of by witnessing like end of year parties on college campuses. How joyful are they? I mean, you had a bunch of exhausted people together, you know, uh, to, to try to celebrate the end of the year. They all just want to go home and have a nice meal and watch some Netflix. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like it's hard to muster a lot of enthusiastic energy in May, right, when when finals are need to be graded and everything like that. What do you mean in the year with the celebration? It's like, yeah, how do you thrive during the year? as opposed to strive to get to May. Um, so it starts with uh, where I, you know, sort of w- was talking a little while ago with this, this pause before we kind of jump in anything, before we try to rush through another year. Let's just like take a minute. Let's practice the tools of, of pausing. So you say pause, what does that really mean? What does that look like? What is the framework? What are some resources? Um, how does that, how can that work for, for me? based on who I am and my truth and in my experience in my own life, right? And it works through, you know, a variety of, of different things along the way to, to the end, uh, reflecting, you know, empathy. How do I unlock empathy for myself and others? Um, what is, what is flow? How do I know when I'm in flow and what does it mean to be in flow? Um, ending with, uh, like a celebration sort of at the end. So it, it's just like this programmatic walkthrough of how do you go from, me as I am now, knowing that I want to make changes, feeling exhausting and feeling like I'm, I'm striving for everything exhaustively um, to like, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm not striving. I'm thriving. And I can celebrate that. Less right. suffering, more celebrating. Yeah. Yeah. So we rolled that out on the on the campus this past year. Right. And we went through it and it was it was great. We made a lot of friends along the way. Mm-hmm. That, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so did our colleagues. Right. They made a lot of friends going to these workshops and meeting each other, people forming relationships that did not previously exist by going through this pathway together. Cause it's hard to do it when you're by yourself. Right. But getting little cohorts together to work through it is, is helpful. And that's the key. I think is relationships, relationships that we are human beings who thrive, um, not strive. We we strive together, but we thrive when we are in communion with each other. So I think, and that's the basis of all leadership programs that I'm aware of. Every book, if you get down to it, a good leader is about building relationships. Good teams are about building relationships. Good successful companies, building relationships. Good customer relations, building relationships, relationship, relationships. So yeah. we that's when we are our best. And and when we are so focused on the striving and the suffering and the saying, yes, 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 and we're spinning like tops all ends of us are on fire, burning out, exhausted. Nothing we do is good. Like you said, Sherry, when you are fueled and rested and relaxed, the words come. They come easily because why? Because we are, our ground is fertile. We have, you know, prepared the soil during our wintering time. And now we are in full bloom because we put into the soil what was needed. I love these these garden metaphors. So it makes so much sense that yeah. um, when we just step, and then that's the irony too, I guess, back to that tension idea is that we we think if we can't even wrap our heads around the fact that, wait a minute, if I slow down, I'll get faster. 
Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying to me? If I slow down, I'll get better. And there are probably some fitness coaches. And if we had a, if we had a physiologist listening to this or on the show, they'd say there's probably actual, actually, and I know there are because I've seen YouTubes of you want runners to be faster. They, it's not necessarily about running faster. It's about changing, changing like the the swim stroke or changing the gait or doing mm-hmm. something differently mechanically that may not. It may be counter to what you think. So we just think, well, I have to keep going. Otherwise, I'm going to lose. No, sometimes you stop, pull off, take a sip of water, take a breath. Uh, now you're going to be fat. You might end that race faster because you pause to think and breathe and recharge and and hydrate. So it's the same kind of a thing, right? Or similar. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think sometimes when you're pausing, you start to pay attention to like, is this even the road I want to be on, right? Like, Mm. you know, maybe it's a different road. Um, You know, my background is in rhetoric and writing. Um, I, my dissertation work was actually on what I called guerrilla rhetoric, which is like a very violent metaphor, right? Um, so part of my path has been totally like walking away from guerrilla imagery and moving towards this nonviolence. Um, and part of what that has led me to is just understanding um, how much like I just bought into so many of these myths that like we're competing for resources and scarcity, you know, like Paul and I should be sort of enemies on our campus. Like we're in, you know, he's a biologist. I'm in English. Like I should be walking around talking about how STEM takes everything away from me. You know, we found all the different ways that the institution is almost designed to make cross-department collaboration almost impossible. There are so many opportunities for us to get in tension uh, just by how things are sort of put together. But then when we slow down and ask, well, what is actually our need? Like, how can we best have conversations? Um, I think the more we talk and the less we go into it, assuming everyone's against us, like doors open and administrators who might be in the center together and they'll have a conversation that will lead to solving a problem that's been sort of existing within our institution for a while, but we've just never had the right people in the room to have the conversation. Um, So it, I don't know, somehow these tools, like when when you pause, when you slow down, when you start doing things that just aren't the way they've always been, it opens doors we wouldn't have imagined. Yeah, and that seems to me that that would take a culture shift where a good, thoughtful leader or good, thoughtful follower would say, can we pause? Can we take a moment to A, celebrate successes? Gosh, Sherry got that paper published. You know, Paul just got that grant. So-and-so just got that award. Uh, so-and-so just had a baby. You know, sell, take a moment to celebrate the humanity, the things that we all have in common, that you know, we all have families, we're humans, we have their sickness and their their challenge and life events that happen. So taking that moment to remind us, ah, yes, people, these are my people. This is let's ground right. ourselves. That sounds like it's it can be a, someone can make a decision to start and build that into into the process or the way we do work around here. Because you said, Sherry, you know, when you you don't get people into a room together to talk to each other, well, of course you don't because no one has a time. Mm-hmm. So if you build that into, this is our culture. We have these, whatever you want to call it, the timeout, the part of our faculty meetings or part of our mm-hmm. all staff meeting is this. 
you you build it into the agenda, that just becomes a part of how we do business around here. So you remove stigma about talking about things that maybe are personal or you or mental health concerns or anything that's kind of like the ickiness that you just talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the leader can take the lead by saying that, yeah, I'm having a hard time with you know, our, our kids. Some of you have known that maybe he's, you know, he's got, he's been in the hospital for this, that, and the other. I'm going to be taking some time off or my kids are in summer camp. So my schedule is going to change. I'm going to be off that I'm going to be on just talking about things uh, kind of normalizes life and being human but it all comes with, I think, a, a thoughtful, purposeful decision to do that, right? To to de- to practice and to show the pausing, the taking the moment. I mean, airline pilots do it. Surgeons do it. They do the pause checklist. Let's stop. Take, take a look here. Yeah, right, right. Um, there doesn't seem to be a stigma about not talking about work at home. It's, boom. You know, boom. it's like... <laughs> Why Whoa. is there a stigma about talking about me as a as a as a person at, at work when there's I mean the opposite does not seem to be a problem, right? We we go to work and we work and we go home and we talk about work. Oh my gosh! And we oh wake my gosh. up and I, we. T- <laughs> I need a, I need a moment to see to see that playing out in my head. Can you imagine us going home going? Oh my gosh! Today at work, Sherry and everybody yeah, work go, yeah. and everybody home go. Oh, yeah, you know it's ew, not appropriate to talk about whispering. work in the home space. Oh you my know? gosh, you're talking about work. Ew! Oh my gosh! Oh, weird, awkward. No, yeah. you're sure. right. How come that's not bi-directional? <laughs> Wait a minute. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. So, yeah, but that's. I mean, that's something that. Uh, we we sort of bring upon ourselves, though. I mean, it's like uh, my coworkers, I don't want to hear about my problems. So I'm just going to, you know, buckle down and do my job. And my poor family that I live with at home is going to catch the the brunt end of that when I get home. You know, it's like we want to show up best for our, our colleagues at work in a workspace, you know, at the not despite, but oftentimes at the expense of the people that I love, who I have a life with at home outside of the workspace. Um, and so it, it's this, you know, I don't want to overuse the word balance or anything like that. But if we're going to talk about work at home, I think we get to talk about the things that affect us at humans at work. Um, and so there's there are ways to do that. Um, that not are only that are better than neutral. I mean, they're positively productive. Because, you know, Kimberly early, you were talking about you know, I don't have time to, you know, form all these new relationships and all this kind of stuff at work. You're already in relationship with people that you work with. You know, ah, you, sp- you don't group. have to. Yeah, you don't news, have news to. Flash. <laughs> you have a lot of relationships. It's like, so really this, is a, this is a decision on how do you want that relationship to go? You know, how do you want that relationship to go? You know, is this relationship that I already have? Um, going to be more productive, positive, easier, more beneficial, more, um, more yeah. nutritious, so to speak. If I put a little time and in, in uh, energy and a little bit of intention into that being a kind one, and yeah. kind does not mean like easy or a pushover. No means no. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry, but I don't have it currently on my schedule or my time to do that. Um, if you'd like to think about things that we could take off of my camp, my calendar, so I can put that on there, I'd be happy to chat. Um, when does next week work for you? Right, right. It, it gets down to that. So I'm really kind of stuck on that. We are already in relationships. So those of us who that that compassion that you know Sherry was talking about earlier, it goes both ways. So the when we go home, I'm still stuck in that because you kind of my mind was blown and I got to go back and pick up pieces of my mind that you blew out of my head. <laughs> but so yeah, at home, 
we have the compassion and the empathy of, oh, mom, oh, dad, oh, oh, sweetie. Yeah, so-and-so again. Oh, oh. We, we have that that level of understanding at home. So flip it at work. We It's kind of, it seems obvious that we should have the same level of compassion and empathy at work for when people are going, oh my gosh, you know, my mom is sick and my dad's in the hospital and they're over in India and then my child is this and oh my gosh, it's the same level of compassion that should swing both ways. Well, now I just lost my track of thought, what I was wanting to go to, what you were saying about, oh, then it gets to this, the fact that we are in relationships. So are we in transactional relationships or transformational relationships? So I think some of us, again, in this, in the spirit of efficiency say, well, these are transactional relationships. I don't need to build a relationship with that guy who's the security desk at the front of the building because I just see him once a day for 10 seconds um, versus, you know, patients where I'm trying to get them to follow this protocol and heal themselves. You know, no, I would say no. I, every every relationship uh, can be transformational. The, that few moments to actually know someone's name who works in the parking lot or at the security station, that momentary pause could profoundly change your day, your life, her day, his day, his morning, because again, we are built to be in communion with each other and recognize, I see you, you see me, I see you, I got you, even if it's just like a, yep, one of those days that pause to greet and see each other can totally change um, the way we arrive in in, in, yeah. in our in spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I think we kind of move through life. Um, I'm reminded of the story that Ram Dass sometimes will tell, would tell, um, but we, we kind of, it's like, we think that people are going to um, like swoop in and like take over our lives if we let them in a little bit. Um, so Ramdas has this story where somebody's like, oh, but if I was kind to the unhomed person um on the street, then next by in a week they'd be living with me, right? Um, like and he talks, you know, through that and it's just like, you know, this it's like this myth of compassion that it's like we're gonna be overwhelmed by it. Um so we, in our workshops, we have a workshop on commune, community, um, and part of what we try to get folks to think about is um, what does it really mean to commune? And like, what kinds of needs are we actually trying to, um, are we able to meet in other people? And whose needs seem to matter within our workscape? Um, so, you know, there's an interesting thing where, um, you know, the boss's birthday seems to be like, a big thing that people might acknowledge, but then, you know, the custodian who, you know, cleans up after said birthday might not be like their birthday might not be. So part of it is like an equalizing factor of like, you know, if we all, you know, need acceptance, if we all need connection, then, you know, is there something that you could do today that would meet somebody's need for connection? Are you, are you ignoring people's needs because you're so overtapped with your own needs? Like mm. you're not taking care of your own needs, so you can't show up for other people's either. That mm. kind of and, and 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 does it also go to the reverse of you're so overtapped with taking care of other people's needs that you're not taking care of your own needs? I'm thinking of busy moms and dads who are the yes people, and they are like they're 
the people who didn't get the message on the airplane, they're running around up and down the aisle, putting everybody else's mask on. And they're like, oh, I'm going to pass out. I have no air. Well, yeah, because you're taking care of everybody else. And and this shows up in the classroom, too, right? Like, because sometimes, like, the the faculty member will try to do everything they can for all the students and meet all the students' needs. Um to the detriment of their own needs. Um, and one of the things in the nonviolent communication world is that all needs are equally important. So, you know, on this call, like Kim's needs are just as important as Paul's, as just as important as Sherry's. But there's this idea that we're supposed to like check our needs as faculty when we walk in the door. Like I suddenly become a person who doesn't have real emotion, who, you know, maybe didn't have a hard time sleeping last night or whatever the case may be. And so I started getting a lot more real about my needs in the classroom, not trying to go get, you know, I don't need my need for affection to be met in my classroom. Um, But, you know, mutuality, like I'll tell my class, like, you know, I'm really feeling, you know, like I've done a lot to really show up for you. Um, I'm wondering how you all feel about how you've been showing up for me in the last couple of weeks. Can we have that conversation? Um, And it flips the script in some ways, but it it draws students up into a level of responsibility um, that, you know, they need to thrive in the world. Mm-hmm. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's another, gosh, I just want to pause in a moment and just think what you just said. I mean, I, I just saw the picture of that creating responsibility and purposefully, purposely and I'm thinking of the purpose-driven life. It's not all about you. Um, but starting with the expectation, no, if we're in this, we're in this together. And you're yeah. all in, all in. You not, already not, are. You already are in it together. Yeah. You are. We are in it together. So you decide, you know, how, how, um, how do you want this to play out for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you want it to play out for us? Because then that, so can you maybe... Give us a couple like nuggets of insight. What if, you know, Sherry, Paul and I, we're, we're, we're this great team. We're all rowing together. We have the, we're meeting each other's needs. We're aware of, you know, we're trying to be curious and non-judgmental. We, we got it. We're drinking the Kool-Aid. And then, you know, we bring in Joe and Joe's not, you know, quite aligned with this language. You know, how do we, how do we mediate that? How do, how does one, um, how do we embrace that difference of Joe? So, so whoever the Joe is, the Joe's in your lab, in your clinic, in your operating room, in the classroom, how do you deal with the Joe who's not into the whole nonviolent communication needs, pausing, feelings, boundaries, compassion, not getting it? Any words of wisdom for those of us who struggle with the, the Joe's out there or the Josephines or the toxic girlfriend, not the toxic boyfriend, the toxic, you know, all those, all that stuff. What do we yeah. do? Well, the, my first thought is like, boy, if we only have one joke, we're doing pretty good, right? Yeah, right. Oh, you mean there are more? I mean, there's only one person here at Hopkins. There's only one. <laughs> that's the one. We all know who they are. Just yeah, that one. Ah, uh, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I think Paul and I have navigated a lot of uh, spaces together where, you know, even within workshops where we're teaching in VC, um, sometimes, you know, there's somebody who pops up um, and is like just that really challenging persona to be with. Um, And we talk about this in our commune workshop as well. Um, 
you know, I think the first starting place for me a lot of times is trying to identify what need is Joe trying to meet? Because everything in Joe's behavior, Josephina or whoever, like, like they're trying to meet a need. Um, and so a lot of times if I can identify what is the need, um, then I can start trying to figure out, is there a request I can make of Joe that would help Joe work within this team in a way that would help the team thrive? Um, and so to figure that out, we kind of move through all four steps of the NVC framework, right? So it's like observing like, oh, I'm observing that as he comes into the scene, he disrupts things. I'm noticing maybe Joe's feelings are like this. Maybe, you know, when we're working with Joe, I notice these feelings in Kim. And then try to identify, like, you know, does does Kim have some unmet needs? Are Joe's needs unmet? And then what request? Request is the last part of uh, NBC. So trying to identify not just like, oh, there's Joe again, but instead, what need is he trying to meet? And how can we as a team navigate that need? What would you add, Paul? I was going to say, I mean, there's there's clearly some things uh, that's going on within Joe that are very, very important to him. You know, and in, in, in that, one of the helpful things for, for the rest of the group would be to, you know, ask some questions of Joe, which by and large of itself, or Josephina, will invite him in to uh, the, the the preferred way of communicating with each other in in the in the group that we're in. You know, let's find out a little bit more about Joe and what and what drives him. And one of the most useful resources that Sherry and I have in in the center that we that we run to do exactly this um, is tea. Mm. Tea. Like tea and crumpets tea. Tea, tea and cups. Yeah, tea, tea and mugs. Let's sit down and have a cup of tea and talk through what's important to both of us here. Um, and let's see if we can come together in relationship. Um, by understanding what is driving each other. And then we can, I can better appreciate through empathy what your situation is. I hope you could better understand what mine is. And then from there, we could, we could form a relationship where we can be mutually supportive. So why don't you come on in uh, where we can come to you. Let's have a cup of tea and have a chat and get to know each other a little bit. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. Um, it requires consent of the other person. So sometimes they can say no. Uh, if they do say no, then a lot of the relationship might be a little bit more self-protective um, and protective of each other from then on out. So finding out how to get to a yes with what that initial communication is, maybe, you know, we can start to see Joe or Josephina as being a little more human and, and hopefully he or she uh, can see see us as a little more human. Yeah. So being, you're, you're, you're again, you're demonstrating the curiosity, being curious. Yeah. Hmm, I noticed that this is happening I want to learn more, you know, tell me more about this, learn more about Joe Josephina, the creating safety, you know, a cup of tea, a mug of tea, that's safe. Maybe it's just on a one-on-one or just the three of us, a smaller group. And I'm thinking mo- you're modeling this behavior where over time it becomes evident that this is the culture they've created. It's authentic. It's real. It's, it's tra- not- it builds trust. It builds trust. Yeah. And it's, I think what is so, what I see over and over, and I coach so many faculty members is one of the fundamental needs. And I don't, this is not based on literature or any kind of scholarship, but is this, this need to, um, for faculty to feel just validated that I'm smart enough. I'm good enough. I, I know what I'm doing. And I think a lot of the fear 
And the acting out behavior comes from not feeling respected or not being treated like I, so a fear of like, I don't belong, I don't fit in my, 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 I don't have the right pedigree. And that maybe, I don't know what, what a lot of feelings, I don't know what I'm talking about, but this, I notice, I've noticed that a lot of these misunderstandings evolve from some faculty members feeling like you don't respect me, Paul, you disrespected me, Sherry. I'm not treated. I don't, I'm not given the resources like everybody else. I'm not valued here. And so that, that kind of like put throws up a wall of I'm not in the in club. So if we are curious um, and I'm pretending that might be Joe or Josephina's issue, but that's a common one, I think is among academics, right? They, they, that intellectual prowess and they having earned the credentials to be there it's always earning, right? How many manuscripts do you have? How many awards do you have? How many grants do you have? How much patient revenue do you generate? That competition is like, I'm in the game, man. I belong here. It's That's that fear of like, I'm going to be kicked out of the club. Yes. So the honesty, the the honesty of showing in a, in a group, wherever your, your community is, is like, oh, I messed up. I got that. That paper was rejected again. Or that grant got triage. It wasn't even scored. Or Oh my yeah. gosh, the patient, you know, dropped off and didn't didn't come in for the thing. And uh, oh, I just, you know, I said the wrong thing in in the classroom today and I got my put my foot in my mouth. That like, whoa, that's a culture here. They're real. Yeah. That sets up safety and trust. And part of that nurtures that kind of nonviolent way of being, right? Yeah. Well, and I think part of what you're touching there is like I definitely when we're working with academics, there's often that need to be seen and to be heard and to belong. And there are so many things that we've gone through to become academics where this idea of belonging really has been in jeopardy. And for a lot of us, it still is. Like, you know, Paul and I have the luxury of being full professor and all of that comes with that. But for our colleagues who haven't, you know, gotten there, you know, that sense of belonging is still sort of tenuous. And so, you know, I think when we don't feel like we belong, then everything else falls apart. And so one of the things that sometimes happens is if people aren't, don't have strong strategies for meeting their needs outside of academia, then those unmet needs come with them to work, right? And so it could be that Joe has a lot to work out and is trying to get his need to belong and to be heard met at work, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we we have had times where we could identify the need of the other party and the space of our meeting just isn't the place where that need is going to get met. Um, and that is also where we've gone back to the pause strategy. I remember a time that Paul and I were on a call and there was a person who was very, um, very discouraged. And the way that that discouraged feeling and frustrated feeling was coming out was that uh, this person was being pretty antagonistic towards anything Paul said. Um, and that's like a red flag for Sherry Land. Like, if you're mean to Paul, like, the gloves come off. Like, I mean, in a very nonviolent way. Um, but so I remember in that meeting saying, hang on, can we all just take a pause for a second? And then that person kept talking. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to need us just to take a pause. Can we take a pause? Um, And so once we got into that pause, I was just like, you know, I'm just so disappointed. I'm not sure this collaboration is going to work because I came to it needing this. And what I'm seeing is this. So maybe this just isn't the way to go. 
And as soon as um, that person had been invited to pause and then had been kind of held accountable for how they were making, you know, how they their actions were impacting the group and the fact that the collaboration was about to dissolve, things changed. Well, 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 what do you say? <laughs> I I love that. That, right, again, holding people accountable to and and like you said with the, with the students, there's a responsibility there. This we are in relationship, and this is how we're going to do this relationship. This is how these are our expectations for behavior. We have certain guidelines for civility and and justice and equity, and this is what it, it's going to look like. And I call, you know, I call foul. This is not how we talk to each other. And I like that you give the example of you stepping in for someone else. Because to me, there's nothing more powerful than um, someone who you'd least expect to stand up for somebody to stand up for somebody. Not that you would be least expected to. But I remember being in a situation where there was only a couple guys and men in a group and a lot of women. And one of the the one man was being cantankerous and said something un, uh, very, very uh, against women. And, and all the women around the room, we looked at each other like, did he say that but he was very senior very famous very blah 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 so we're all just kind of look at each other like i don't what and we all our jaws just dropped and who said something the other man in the group and we're like oh yes so that meant more to us this so that it wasn't like a we them that no we're not gonna i'm calling you out there guy we, we that's not how we talk around here and it I think that's also the part of the responsibility that we're all like, this is how this is our, our common mutual needs are that we feel safe, that we are trusting each other. We hold each other and ourselves accountable and no, we've all signed in on signed up for this. So that's to me, very, very powerful. May it be so. May it be so. Yeah. May it be so. What were the four components of the nonviolent communication framework, observing or noticing. Mm -hmm. The second was identifying feelings, feeling, and then needs and Mm -hmm. then requests. Exactly. Yep. Observing or noticing, identifying the feelings, Mm -hmm. uh, noticing the needs or uh, figuring out the needs and then putting the request out. Okay. Exactly. Those those feelings point to the needs. And so it's like a little, uh, feelings do have a purpose, right? Yeah, they point right to those needs. Um, and then once you get to the request, that's that's where it gets good. And then, the, and you just demonstrated that when you had that scenario with that that guy, that crunchy guy, who you know, you said I'm noticing something. Uh, you know, I'm feeling this is, makes me uncomfortable. Uh, and then uh, noticing or saying the group's needs and his needs was obviously to be like a, the boss guy and made the request is maybe we're going to not go further on this collaboration. I'd, I'd ask that we did not do this or ask that we change that kind of that model work there for him to go, whoa, consequences, because there are consequences for our behavior, either in the moment or delayed, but there will be consequences because I'm imagining had you let that kind of bad behavior continue, because you're like, well, this is an important collaboration. There's a lot of money in the line. We just got to put up with it, we know, because she's famous and, you know, that's just the way she is. You know, we all just kind of ignore her. That sets up kind of this toxicity 
that you think, well, if they're tolerating that, what else else are they going to tolerate? They really don't care about us because it's all about the money or the project or the the brand or, you know, whatever. We could see how that plays out. So, yeah. 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 That, my father has always had this saying of like, don't accept unacceptable behavior. And I think it comes down to that. There's no, no one, no one gets paid enough to accept abuse. So we don't do it. Don't accept. There it is. There it is. Well, <laughs> Dr. Nothing Sharon, to say after, nothing to say after doc- that. So <laughs> nothing to say. Don't accept unacceptable behavior. Yeah. There it is. Dr. Sherry Lemire Spiegel, Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. Uh, right. And check out this most unbelievable life. We didn't get a really chance to talk there, but this um this most unbelievable life.com. I just pulled it up. It's what if compassion, mindful awareness, and connection are the ultimate tools for an unbelievable life? A fantastic portfolio of workshops, a, their own podcast, resources. You got to go check it out. And also, please do check out the Annandale Center for Contemplative Practice. I said contemplative, but I noticed, I noticed. We go both ways on it. Yeah, we we say both ourselves. It's fine. It's fine. Either way. (laughs) But notice me noticing. I'm noticing things. So, so very, very fortunate. Northern Virginia Community College. Wow. Dr. Spiegel, Dr. Fitzgerald, I'll leave a parting comment to one or both of you. And thank you so much for nonviolent communication. This has been a wonderful conversation. Ah, uh, I think Paul gets the mic drop today. Oh, do I? <laughs> you do. I think you do. It's going to be okay. Everybody is just going to be okay. You know, if things are hard, it's going to be okay. We can do it together and it's going to be fine. And there you have it. Thanks everybody for being on the Faculty Factory podcast. Thank you, Heather Bro, for bringing us Dr. Spiegel and Dr. Fitzgerald. If you know someone who should be on this podcast and it might be you, please reach out to us and we'd love to have you on the program. Thanks everybody. See you next time on the podcast. Hi everyone. It's Kim Skorupski in the Faculty Factory. Just a big thank you for being a part of this vibrant international community where we all share our tools to build academic leaders. Did you know that the Faculty Factory podcast for almost five years now, dropping episodes every Friday, has had almost 70,000 downloads and YouTube listeners from 84 countries? We're waiting to learn from you. Would you please shoot me an email so that we can record your episode? Or maybe you'd like to sponsor someone else to be on the podcast? Our email address is facultyfactorykim at gmail. The address at Hopkins here is kskarupski, that's K-S-K-A-R-U-P-S-K-I at J-H-M-I dot E-D-U. And yes, all the episodes on the Faculty Factory podcast are also on our YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel and the YouTube channel is sorted into buckets for your easy viewing. Let me look at these buckets and tell you what they are. Discussions with deans, communication, general faculty development podcasts and interviews, promotion and tenure, reunion episodes from great speakers from the past and guests from the past. The Habits and Hacks from Hopkins, we recorded that during COVID when we were all kind of hunkered down. Self-awareness and self-management, leadership, networking, research and scholarship, 
and mentoring and coaching. So again, that's on the YouTube channel. Then did you also know that the facultyfactory.org website has drawn almost 37,000 visits from users in 122 countries? If you go to facultyfactory.org, We've put together a lot of resources for everyone to share. Not only will you see the podcast, but under resources, we have coaching resources. We have our eBooks. We have all the institutions. Yes, if you're listening from any other institution, any school of medicine in North America, your institution is listed there under resources with a link to your Office of Faculty Development or Faculty Affairs. If we have the wrong address, give us an update, but that's a really neat way of seeing all the schools in North America. We have related affiliate organizations, so the Association of American Medical Colleges, affinity groups, and other partner groups that you might be interested in that do faculty development. And then scholarship, we have a link on tons of scholarship around faculty affairs and faculty development, so you could check that out as well. And then we have a blog, and there's, there's places to contact us on the website as well. So facultyfactory.org, you can um, send an email directly through the website. We also have a Faculty Factory Twitter channel. You might want to join us there. And then we have two free ebooks. We're working on the third, spoiler alert, but two free ebooks you can send to all your colleagues, friends, faculty members, learners, trainees. One is called the Snippets for Success. That's all of you around the country who shared your tips and tricks for being successful in academic medicine. That's a free ebook sitting there waiting to be downloaded. As well as, again, during COVID, we did habits and hacks from faculty members here in Hopkins. They shared their wisdom around how they built their careers, how they overcame certain hurdles and challenges. That's another ebook you can take a look at and share with friends. So thank you again for listening to the Faculty Factory podcast, for being a part of our community. Will you please tell someone today about the Faculty Factory podcast? These Faculty Factory efforts are supported by the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and our wonderful Vice Dean for Faculty, Dr. Maria Oliva Hemker, and you, our loyal patrons who share our passion around the world for faculty career and professional development. Thanks, everybody.